Okay, we're live. How you doing, everybody? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's Wednesday, April 26th. Hey, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We like to kind of look at the world through that lens, but we kind of break it down and specifically zero in on San Diego County news stories, newsmakers. And boy, do we got a lot going on in this podcast episode for you, I'll tell you. Here's the agenda. Um, We're going to be covering the Poway Unified School District and their case that's going before the Supreme Court of the United States. This is a really fascinating topic. We're going to break that down. We're going to get into school districts suing social media companies, kind of a related story. Uh, There's also big news coming out of the city of San Diego with protections for renters and eviction notices. I have some comments and thoughts there. A bunch of things about utility billing that I thought was interesting that we can discuss. You know, still a lot of people upset with San Diego gas and electric billing practices, but there's also, you know, kind of a controversy with the way landlords are charging for utilities, um, um, you know, with renters. And so we're going to break that down as well. Um, There's a lot going on with homelessness with the San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. The city of San Diego's buying some hotels and converting them into housing for the homeless. We'll break all that down. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about electric vehicles. You know, there's been a, a, a big surge in EV sales, but there's also some people that are getting really frustrated with electric vehicles. And we're going to share kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly with EVs. And, you know, I love talking about EVs. I'm a big electric vehicle uh, fanatic, uh, but they certainly are not perfect and they have their issues. And we'll kind of break a lot of that down. And we'll have our San Diego Community Forum. So, and that really is for you. So if you'd like to be involved in this podcast, if you have a question, a comment, or a thought, you can participate in the live stream. Just go to the live stream on either Facebook or on YouTube. There you can type in your questions, your comments, your hot takes. Maybe you have a, you want to challenge me on some things. You want to debate an issue, or maybe you have some questions about some of these news stories. Just put them in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. I'll see them, and I'll get you involved. We'll put your question up on the screen, your avatar and everything. So it'll be just like a community forum. And also we'll be getting a lot of our YouTube commenters involved. I've got a couple of those questions already prepared. So, wow, (laughs) there's a lot here. So how you doing, everybody? Hope everyone's doing well. You know, I try to do this podcast every Wednesday at about 12 noon, um, and I unfortunately, I missed last week. I mean, just kind of handling some personal issues uh, with family, you know, t- kind of taking care of my wife. She just had surgery, and so um, that's all going well, but uh, just wasn't in the cards for a podcast last week, but I'm happy to be here with you now. And, you know, our, our last podcast we did two weeks ago, boy, we had a, a loaded agenda like this, but I'll tell you what, it gave us a lot of little clips and things to share. Uh, wow, I was able to kind of take that podcast and spread it out over another week or week and a half. And I intend to do the very same thing here. So again, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Let's dive in. And I want to start, first of all, with this big news with Poway Unified School District. And there's a case being brought to the Supreme Court. Now, This one is interesting to me for a lot of different reasons. I mean, number one, I live in Poway. And so and we've covered a lot with the Poway Unified School District and the challenges and issues that they're facing. 
But at the same time, this involves current school board member. I think she's the president of the council, uh, Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe and former school board member T.J. Zane, who I both know. I know both of these individuals uh, because I ran as a candidate in 2014 for school board and they were my opponents. So I got to know them. And so this story kind of has a little bit of a personal connection with me. But um, the big news is, is that the Supreme Court is going to hear this Poway case on whether public school officials can block people on social media. So that's pretty intriguing, right? You know, so let's kind of break down what happened here with Poway and how this thing got all the way to the Supreme Court. So this case concerns, you know, TJ Zane, Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe. They had built their own Facebook and Twitter pages that they built as part of their campaign. And what they did is as as after they were elected, they kept those those accounts open, but they shared a lot of content on those pages that was about school board news and school board events. And it sort of became their official or so-called unofficial school board social media account where they conducted business, they engaged with their constituents, they interacted with the people in Poway and Rancho Bernardo, Rancho Penasquitos, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Forest Ranch, Westwood, Del Sur, Saber Springs, this whole area, Poway Unified. And it was kind of like the, yeah, like the way they communicated with their constituents. Well, what happened is, is that we had um, a number of People, you know, respond to those messages. And, you know, for the most part, they're very friendly or supportive. But there is a couple here in San Diego, uh, Chris Garnier and his wife, Kimberly Garnier, who have been very outspoken, have been um, challenging the school board on a wide range of issues. You know, and this goes back to, gosh, probably about 2016, 2017, when John Collins was the superintendent of Poway Unified. You know, there was already a lot of heat with him because of the billion dollar bond. Well, there were a lot of other questions and, and issues related to Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe and T.J. Zane because they were supportive of former school board uh, superintendent John Collins. They backed him even through all of this disgrace, you know, because John Collins was embezzling money from, you know, from children. There was a lot of unethical business contact and the way that they managed their affairs at Poway Unified. Now, John Collins has since been removed from his post and has been replaced um, by uh, Marion Kim Phelps. And I think that's now going on about four or five years. But so this case has been cooking, you know, for a number of years. And the Garnier family have been challenging the, the TJ Zane and Michelle O'Connor Radcliffe. They have been sending them emails you know, about John Collins, about racial issues at Poway Unified, they weren't getting a response. So they started sending messages and responses to their Facebook pages or Twitter pages. And if you know the Garnier family, you know, they're very passionate. I mean, some would say they're pretty aggressive. They're not, I wouldn't say they cross the line. They're, they're not abusive. They're, they're usually using good language. Um, they're not, um, um, I, I would say, any more aggressive than you might see people that are upset with their congressman or their mayor or their state governor. I mean, they expressed their views and they were sharing them and they were challenging these school board members to hold John Collins accountable to address a lot of the issues at Poway Unified. 
They weren't getting a response when they went to the public meetings. They weren't getting a response when they went and, and sent email or they got very little response. So they started responding in the social media content uh, comments. And these school board officials didn't like hearing it. They didn't want it. And so what they did is they blocked them. Now, normally, if you are an individual and, yeah, there's just some a-hole that's like, you know, trolling you, and you, you can block them. That's fine. But these are public officials. These are elected officials. These are people who use their social media account to engage with their constituents. No different than if you were to call your congressman and, you know, want to express your thoughts or opinions on a bill before Congress. And it turned out that they blocked your phone number. Or they hang, hang up on you every time you call because they didn't want to deal with you. I mean, not only is that completely unethical and immoral for a school board or an elected f- official to ignore their constituents or, and frankly, to rudely ignore them by blocking them. But it's a whole other level when you have essentially government officials blocking people's speech, blocking their ability to communicate. And that's what the First Amendment is really all about. The First Amendment is about government regulating speech, about government determining what's good speech or bad speech and what's allowed and what's disallowed. And while these were accounts for their social media that had their personal name on them, they were, you know, de facto official government how should I say, political platforms, how they engage with their populace. And so that's the thing. Is this, is this, are there Twitter and Facebook pages, individual pages? Are they pages that were connected to their actual uh, political profile and their campaign? So I, I, to me, this is interesting. And, and so the case went and, um, you know, was originally ruled in the favor of the Garniers, that it was a, a breach of the First Amendment. It was then later appealed. And I think it went to like the, was it the Ninth Circuit Court? Um, it went to, a, it was, um, went to a number of other different levels. And it kept getting appealed. And now it's finally at the Supreme Court level. So it's turning into sort of a, a landmark case that affects a lot of local politicians of whether or not they can essentially shut out their constituents on social media. And then a lot of this obviously is, um, you know, this cultural transition of social media and how it's affecting how people interact and engage with other individuals. But I, I'm generally supportive of the Garniers on this one. I mean, I, you know, I get it if you're a, if you're an elected official and you and you have a particular constituents that are on you, you know, that are that are challenging you and are relentless. You still have to take the high road. Ethically, morally, and in my opinion, legally, um, you can't just shut them out. And especially on social media, I mean, you know, I mean, you can pick and choose who to respond to, but you shouldn't block them entirely. I mean, come on. I mean, this this is what representative representative democracy is supposed to be all about, right? Um, so that's that's kind of the debate. Is, is it a personal page? Is it a official campaign page? Um, are these private citizens? Are they public officials? Um, how does the rule apply? I mean, let me know your thoughts in the in the comments and questions. We'll be happy to take those. So, yeah, wow. And you think about this too: is that Poway Unified, this little old school district here in North County Inland, San Diego County. 
um, it's been in the news so much for a school district. That's really amazing. There was, you know, the billion dollar bond where they borrowed a hundred million and agreed to pay it back with roughly a billion dollars. That became a national disgrace. <laughs> was on all the national media, and it, it, they and the state of California made those kinds of um, bonds. Um, illegal. They, they've since made them illegal. Um, we've had the controversy with our school board superintendent, John Collins, the embezzlement, the breach of ethics, um, a lot of very questionable practices. And he was found guilty in a court of law and was removed from his post. We've had racial um, issues at Poway Unified uh, that, you know, there's been racism within the school district. Some people say it's out of control. Other people say it's overblown, but that's been pumped up in the media. And then, of course, we have all the cases with these parents' um, uh, rights community that have been challenging the COVID policies, the mask policies, have been challenging um, a lot of the uh, um, uh, CRT, critical race theory, um, you know, curriculum. And it's just it's interesting that a school district here in Poway is in the news so often. But here it is. They're going to be going before the Supreme Court. Now, the official statements from O'Connor, Radcliffe and Zane is say they welcome this, you know, because they want to protect the free speech rights of of them, of because of, they say that public officials also have free speech rights and they do. But I think this is a tricky one. I'm very curious to see how this goes, particularly with the Supreme Court, you know, is kind of. Six three in the favor of kind of a more conservative view, and conservatives these days tend to be pro uh, free speech advocates. So, I mean, what do you think is going to happen here? I'm curious. Okay, um, let's move on to this related story, and it's it's about the Oceanside School District and the Coronado Unified School District and their challenges with social media. And this is kind of a little bit of a derivative on what's happening at Poway. So the headline here in the Union Tribune is that the Oceanside and Coronado school districts are suing social media companies saying they fueled a youth mental health crisis. It's a crisis. And it's not just Oceanside and Coronado. They've jumped on board with a lot of other school districts um, throughout the state that are suing big tech. And so here's a, another excerpt from the article is that they're suing the count, the country's largest social media companies, arguing that their content algorithms and platform designs are addicting children and teens and have caused worsening anxiety, depression and suicidal thoughts. Wow. I mean, that's a lot in here. And so, you know, they're going after all the biggies, right? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. I mean, all of them are YouTube. I mean, every one of these big social media companies is being addressed by this. And they're really saying, hey, man, this is this is breaking down, you know, um, a lot of the the way students interact. There's bullying online. There's a lot of health issues, you know, mental health issues. And we're not putting up with this. We're suing the school districts. I mean, what do you think of this? I mean, this to me is interesting too. Um, so here you've got uh, the previous story. You have school board members that are struggling, interacting with their constituents on social media, and they're going to court at a Supreme Court level. Now you've got school districts that are struggling with social media as it pertains to the students. Now, is social media causing a mental health crisis? This is a little bit of a chicken and egg, you know. Is is a 
So is there a mental health crisis in America? I think the answer is pretty clear. The answer is yes. And there's a lot of issues related to mental health and the reasons why people have been experiencing mental health, including young people. Now, but has that led to the the situations in social media or is it the other way around? Has social media caused greater mental health issues? I think that's debatable. Um, I, I tend to think, though, that the core issue is that there are legitimate mental health issues. But what's happening here is that the school districts, in my opinion, are not taking full responsibility on managing social media within the context of how they teach students. So rather than point a finger and blame the social media companies, these school districts, what they should be doing is teaching students how to critically think and how to utilize social media within the context of all of their social relationships. This is really important, you know, because it's not just the idea of teaching critical thinking. It's the idea of using your mind to reason. And to think these things through and to understand what these platforms are all about. We all understand that there are algorithms, or most of us do, that tend to, you know, fuel that addictive behavior. Because, you know, they encourage the likes, they encourage the retweets, etc. And the more you typically click on a particular individual or profile or you click on a particular topic, you're starting to get more and more of that topic, more and more of that person's posts. And that's real. I mean, that and on one level, that's kind of a good thing because you're getting what you're interested in. You know, rather than get a bunch of irrelevant content on social media, you're hearing from people that you want to hear from or you're getting information on topics that you're interested in. So this thing cuts both ways. But I don't I just think that this is a this is a teaching moment. This is a teaching opportunity to have have educators work with students to understand social media and put it in the proper context, you know, because the, the, the challenge with social media is that we're also second-handed. We're not necessarily worried about ourselves. We're worried about what other people think about ourselves. And, you know, mea culpa, I fall into that trap sometimes as well, and it's hard. But I think it's important that, that teachers are teaching people that you need to not get so hung up on what other people think of you. You need to go out there and live your life, pursue your happiness, live a life based on reason and rationality, and don't get caught up in all of this other nonsense. You know, easy to say, hard to do, but that's what has to be accomplished. Because, I mean, imagine you go back in history, and if it wasn't social media, there was always something else that kind of filled that spot, right? There was either... Chitter chatter amongst people in the community. There were letters to the editor and newspapers. There were there's there's been television and radios, all these different media outlets that are all talking about things that are going on. But what the schools have, you know, usually there's that's those are the first people they blame. You know, they they blamed rock and roll in the fifties. <laughs> Tipper Gore was blaming rock and roll lyrics in the eighties, coming before Senate and House committees. But they're not teaching the students to critically think about this. And the other angle to this as well is that, and I heard someone on social media comment this way, that the school districts feel like they're competing against the social media um, platforms. And they don't want to have to compete. 
<laughs> which kind of goes back to the whole notion of school vouchers. That's true. The public school system doesn't want to have to compete. They want to have a monopoly on the thoughts and ideas that students and, and young people are receiving. And any ideas and thoughts that challenge that, they don't like. And so what they want to do is use legal action to block them by either blocking school vouchers or, in this case, suing social media platforms, which to me is nonsense. I mean, you have to win the battle of ideas. And that this, is, like I say, is a teaching moment, a teaching opportunity. Um, now, according to James France, the San Diego-based attorney representing the plaintiff's school districts, he said, it must stop and we will fight to hold these social media companies accountable for choosing profit over mental health and safety of children and their families. OK, how often have we heard this line before? You know, they always demonize profit and they want to protect the children. Right. You know, so these usually these same kinds of ideas and themes but what they're doing is they're just avoiding what they should be doing in the first place is teaching students how to manage social media within the context of their life. Um, and, and it's also I find it always nuts when you see public officials demonize profit when in fact it's profit that funds the schools. It's the profit that a lot of these social media companies are generating that is taxed. That funds the schools. So you would think that they would be supportive of profit, you know, because indirectly that's how they get funded. Um, Now, according to Meta, you know, Meta owns Facebook and they own um, Instagram and WhatsApp. And they have been saying, hey, man, we've we've already got a whole bunch of tools to help students and families kind of work through this, including verification of user age. I think you have to be 13 to get any of these accounts. Well, yeah, but that's really hard to police, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, what if what if they won this case? I mean, how would you police that, you know, in terms of verification of age? And then do you want to have to have a system where students have to submit, like, you know, proof of age, birth certificates in order to use a social media platform? I don't know if that really makes sense at all. In fact, it, I know it doesn't make sense. So um, I just I just find this interesting. Now, here's the quote. From the school districts or the, the line from the school districts, um, according to France, you know, the, the, the attorney that's representing these districts, he says school districts are impacted financially by social media's hold on young people because they spend a lot of money and staffing time addressing not just student mental health, but also cyberbullying and social media use during school hours. Well, schools are supposed to handle bullying issues. If, it, if there was bullying going on in the playground, they should manage that. And if there's bullying going on on social media, they need to manage that too, to the, you know, to the extent that you can manage it. And it really goes down to talking to, you know, to, these, to students, teaching them about respect, teaching them about individual rights, teaching them about this notion of sort of equality under the law and all men are created equal. Teaching them that we all have our own inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think if we did that, there would be a lot less bullying, you know, of people that are superior over people that are inferior. So again, it goes back to what they teach and how they teach it. 
And to me, this is an avoidance, an abdication of what school districts should be doing in the first place. But since they can't get it their way, they're suing. Now, legal experts think that this will never end up, this case will never end up winning, if not, if much even be heard. Because, you know, there is this thing called Section 230, which is, you know, part of the regulation around media that protects social media companies from the content of what's pe- what people post. And this is a hotly debated issue. You know, Trump talks about this a lot where, you know, he doesn't like people on social media criticizing him. And so he wants to sue the social media company for liable. But the social media company says, hey, man, we're just a platform. We're just the ones that enable people to post. We're not the ones actually creating that content. You know, it's not unlike a letter to the editor of the newspaper. You know, so the, the content of that letter to the editor is from the writer of the, of the letter, not from the company publishing the newspaper. And the same is true with a lot of the social media cases. And so this is where it gets dangerous because if now social media companies can be held liable for the content of what's on their platform, then you get further erosion of free speech rights. And you get limitations on who can use social media and how they can use it and what they can say and what's good and what's bad. And it's one thing for social media platforms to try to police it themselves. And they should police it themselves according to their own standards, their own terms and conditions. But it's a whole other thing when suddenly the government sticks their nose in the tent and they become the ones managing the content and they become the arbiters of what can be said and what cannot be said. So th- this is this is dangerous. And it's interesting, too, how these two, these two stories are, are so closely linked, where social medias and schools are having a real challenge. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that social media is a relatively new communication tool, and it's becoming more and more popular, and people are freely expressing themselves there, and... Old school folks are having trouble adopting or adapting to the new technology, just like they had trouble with television sets, thinking they were going to cause, you know, people to have all sorts of problems. I mean, there were, there's always objections to new technology because people fear change. And while they're with all of these new technologies in communication, whether it's the printing press with Gutenberg or you go to radio, Marconi and the television and the Internet and social media, every one of these advances, it takes a while for society to adapt and culture to adapt. And, yeah, there's there's good with the bad. But overall, it's positive. Overall, there's more communication. Overall, more people are engaging in new and creative ways and connecting with people in new and creative ways. Suddenly, you know, going back to our political uh, political representatives, now people have new and interesting ways to engage, to support or challenge their elected officials. That's a good thing. So um, I'm hopeful that this whole idea sort of crashes and burns. I'm hopeful that schools will adopt their curriculum to teach these things. I mean, frankly, that's why I'm an advocate of, well, I'm really an advocate of just privatizing the whole education system, but I know that's not going to ever happen. So in the, in the kind of the more realistic um, environment, I'm a supporter of school vouchers because imagine if, 
for example, you had a child who was at a school and doesn't matter if it's a private school or a public school and they were getting bullied on social media. And you brought it up to the teacher. You brought it up to the counselor. You maybe even had an appointment with or meeting with the principal and you're just getting nowhere and your kid's getting crushed by this. I mean, what do you do? Well, at some point, I think you got to take and, and empower your child. You know, on one level, it is get him out of that school so he's not interacting with those bullies and put him somewhere else where the environment's going to be better. But wouldn't it even be a, a step above that is if there was a particular school in your region, either public or private, that said, you know what, we have a focus on social media in terms of how students can use it, how they learn with social media, how they can adapt to social media, the challenges of social media, and the opportunities of social media. We, we not only teach students how to not get so hung up on what other people think, and which is kind of a more philosophical thing, but we also teach students how to use social media, how to benefit from social media, and really how to be an entrepreneur in social media, and how to use social media for good. Wouldn't that be great? And if you were a parent that had that kid that was getting cyberbullied, now you have options. You have good options. And I think that'd be a good thing. So <laughs> that's something, isn't it? Um, so, okay, let's move on. We've got a bunch more to get into. And again, we welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. You can participate by just typing in your comments and questions um, on YouTube or on Facebook. We'll get you involved. Um, we're going to now get into... San Diego renter protections. We got some San Diego gas and electric billing things. And sometimes you get a little bit into the weeds in this podcast, but a lot of these issues are things that we're all facing, you know, if, if not in San Diego County, but elsewhere, you know, we're all dealing with schools and social media. We're all dealing with housing and utility and cost of energy. And so this, a lot of this is applicable to us in our real life. And, and by the way, if you want to find out more about what I'm doing, John Riley Project, um, you know, it's my podcast, but it's more than just the podcast. I have a couple of other things going on with this, but you can go to johnreillyproject.com. That's my website. There you can get all of our um, previous episodes, all the uh, podcasts and links to all the audio only platforms, you know, Google and Spotify and Stitcher and iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We're on all the platforms. Um, you go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. There are links to all of those, our YouTube page, um, all of our social media links. I've got blog articles and content there. Got a lot of other stuff there. And if you want to ask a question or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, go to my website, John Riley Project and johnreillyproject.com. And there you can get a lot of great info. Okay, let's, let's move along. And I promised myself I was going to go through these a little bit more quickly. Um, so that way, when I, when I edit this down into individual segments, each segment is only about five or 10 minutes, but I think I'm going to need to tighten it up even a little bit more. Okay, so this next story is with the city of San Diego. And um, it's about San Diego is now enacting renter protections. And I, I just found this topic really interesting to me uh, because yeah, I'm always the one to tell you that a lot of times these politicians are trying to solve problems that the politicians created in the first place. And this fits that category. So um, they had a late night meeting earlier this week and they've proposed all these new renter protections. And and the, the gentleman that's appearing on the screen there is Sean Elo Rivera. And he's kind of one of the more outspoken people 
on the city council that's advocating for these renters. And let me break this down. So the biggest part of this new law that the city of San Diego has implemented would require a landlord to give a tenant two months rent if they evict them for no reason. These no-fault evictions include a renter being asked to move for a significant remodel of the property, or if the owner decides to take the unit off the rental market, or simply a landlord deciding after a lease term not to renew a particular tenant. And this is just, you know, this is just very interesting to me. So to, to go a little bit further, and this is uh, Council President Sean Elo Rivera said, renters in San Diego deserve more protections in the face of rising housing costs and the existing power imbalance between landlords and tenants. This is a significant step forward or toward preventing displacement and homelessness. Okay. Again, a lot inside there. So homelessness and housing crisis and rental protection, they are all linked. That is definitely true. So when you sign a lease with a landlord to rent an apartment or to rent a house, what are you doing? Okay. It's a voluntary agreement where two people come together and they trade and they say, I'll give you. a month, and you provide this particular housing unit. And usually the lease is usually like a one-year minimum, which is really kind of good mostly for both parties. So, you know, people aren't bouncing in and out because that's not good for the landlord or the renter. But for the most part, it protects the renter. (laughs) Um, They're going to want a one-year commitment. And then after that, it usually goes month to month. And... And if either party doesn't like the arrangement, they can terminate the lease after a year. So they they freely join together to cooperate, and then they freely can disassociate if they choose. So it's voluntary, it's win-win, and either side can break up with their girlfriend, depending on the circumstances, without any penalty. But now they're saying, no, if you break up with me, I need to be given two to three months of free rent because, you know, I don't know where I'm going to go. Well, a lot of the reason that there's so little places to go is because the, the, the politicians in the city government for decades have been slowing down development, have been preventing development, have been really tightening up the supply of housing mostly to appease their constituents that live in those districts that are NIMBYs and don't want more housing. They don't want their single-family neighborhood turned into an apartment neighborhood. They don't want their open space or golf course turned into housing. Um, These people in local communities just don't want any more construction, or if they do, very little, but not in my backyard, you know, put it over there somewhere. That's what they're doing. So as a result, these politicians have been backing those NIMBYs. These politicians have been enacting housing regulations, zoning laws that prevent a lot of this. And we've seen a lot of that in my hometown of Poway up until recently. Um, And as a result, you've got all this demand for housing, which you're going to continue to have in one of the greatest cities in America, San Diego. And as the San Diego economy continues to grow and prosper People come here. I mean, for all the reasons that you and I live here, it's a great place to live. 
And when there's limited supply of housing and great demand, that sends prices up. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes it so the case that there aren't very many rental places that are available and the prices are expensive. And if you are, you know, if, if you are evicted and usually when you think of eviction, it's for people that don't pay their rent. Right. Well, in this case, if you if you're one of those, yeah, you can be evict, evicted without cause and you don't have to be given two to three months. But in this case, if the if the landlord decides, hey, you know what, um, I'm, I'm going to take this off the market because. I'm going to remodel it and I'm going to upgrade this because I can make more money. I, I can remodel the kitchen and I can convert this from a $2,500 a month uh, rental to a $3,000 a month rental. Well, they should have the ability to do that. It's their property. And if they've met the conditions of the lease where they, they fulfilled the one-year agreement, then after that, if they want to terminate that lease, they should be able to, just as a renter can terminate the lease and move out. You're talking about a power imbalance. Well, both sides have the ability to exit the agreement. But then there are other cases. I mean, there are people that will, um, like we used to have a a condo in Carmel Mountain Ranch and we rented it out and we're not really landlords. We, but, you know, we bought a house, we wanted to keep the condo and we decided to be landlords for a few months, a few years. And then we really sort of decided we didn't like being landlords anymore. It was just not worth it to us. And so when the lease term expired, we told our tenant, we're going to sell the condo. And it made sense. I mean, we, we shouldn't have to pay that person to live in the condo for free while they find a new place to live when it's our property in the first place. Um, so this to me is just in- incredible. I mean, it, it kind of breaks down the whole idea of freedom. I mean, you're essentially violating the freedom of the landlord to use their property as they wish within the context, within the framework of what that lease agreement is. And the the city planner said, well, this law, you know, is only aimed at the bad landlords who use no-fault lease terminations as a way to remove renters without a legal eviction. Well, that doesn't make them bad. I mean, if you if you have a tenant that is in a particular apartment and you don't like the way that they're living in your apartment, you know, if they're if they're causing a ruckus, if they're damaging the apartment, if they're frequently late on their on their payments, and there's a reason you you would like to have them leave and have someone else come in, you should have the ability to do that. Doesn't make you bad. If you want to upgrade that unit and upgrade the kitchen so you can make more money, but also so you have a better quality living unit that other people can enjoy, that doesn't make you bad. If you want to sell the condo or sell the house because you don't want to be a landlord anymore, that doesn't make you a bad landlord. I mean, these are just people making choices in their lives. Just as a renter can choose to rent or not rent, a renter can choose to move in or not move in. Well, the landlord should have the ability to do the same thing within the context of the lease agreement. So to me, this again, this goes back to the whole concept of why the whole system is messed up in the first place. The reason that they don't have they have a, it's a struggle to find a, another decent, affordable place to live if they have to leave is because they've been limiting the amount of construction that exists.
um, landlord groups and individual landlords who spoke at the meeting said a two-month payment or three months for a senior disabled person was unfair because it added to their costs. And it's true. It did add to their costs. Um, and it said it, it gives them an incentive to not make apartment repairs and would likely lead to fewer rentals as potential landlords give up the idea of renting altogether. And that's been happening where, you know, with the, some of the squatting rules where people, landlords are saying, you know, these people are like living in my place. They're squatting. I can't evict them. I mean, this is a more extreme example. But they're finally saying, you know, I, why do I want to be a landlord? And if you're discouraging people from being landlords, then you are um, actually discouraging the creation of more rental units, which then further exacerbates the problem of high expense, high cost of living limited number of availability, and it even you know causes problems with homelessness as more and more people fall off the edge of the cliff. So it's, you know, Shawnee Lo Rivera, you know, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, his heart is there to help the struggling runner. I get that. But what he's doing is long-term big picture is affecting the whole market. And really violating the liberty, violating the property rights of the landlord. Landlords are not bad people. A lot of people have a really negative opinion of landlords. Landlords are business people. I mean, landlords are trading. Just as you buy a car from someone, here you're buying housing from someone. Just like you would, you know, uh, I don't know, rent a car from a car rental company. Here you're renting an apartment or you're renting a house and it's a trade. And they're providing a product or service that meets the needs of a, a big part of the community. I mean, we, we shouldn't be like tearing down landlords. We should be encouraging more housing. We should be encouraging more people to be landlords. And as a result, we'd have more housing, more availability, and probably lower prices. Um, Rent, by the way, has increased 19.8% in two years in San Diego for an average monthly cost of around $2,552. The current, v- current vacancy rate is around 4.2%, making the process of finding a new unit difficult for many. Yeah. And I'll bet you if you're going to, if you do, if you are fortunate to find an availability, it's probably not going to be, you know, those that are significantly below the $2,500 median. Because those are all being held. Those people aren't leaving. Or if you do find one, it's probably not going to be, you know, a place that you'd want to live. It'd be too far away or maybe in a neighborhood where you don't want to live or uh, or an apartment or home that doesn't meet your standards. Maybe it's just, you know, a, a degrading building. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this is it's a problem created by the politicians and now they want to look like heroes for solving it, but they're not really solving the problem. They're just moving. It's a shell game. Um, And then Elo Rivera, who was wearing a T-shirt that said, housing is a right, added an amendment that the landlord would have to alert the San Diego Housing Commission for any at-fault evictions and provide reasons for it. Okay. Well, first of all, we talked about this on a previous podcast. Housing is not a right. You have a right to your own life. You have a right to your own liberty, to make choices about your own life. You have a right to your own pursuit of happiness, to live your life according to your values, provided that you don't violate the rights of other people. 
So you have a right to go about your business and live and to pursue and to flourish. But when you say housing is a right, then what you're basically saying is, is that other people are forced to provide it to to those that need housing or to fund it or to provide it under certain um, terms and conditions, which ultimately violates the right of the people that own the property in the first place. Because if you, that's the thing with rights. There are sometimes people use them very flippantly when they say housing is a right and education is a right and healthcare is a right. Well, every one of those cases violates the rights of other people because they have to provide it or they have to fund it. So if you say housing is a right, then that means, hey, housing is a right. I should be able to live here and not have to pay because it's a right. Or you can't evict me because housing is a right. Well, that's wrong. Housing is not a right. Um, and when when you see this, when you see people claiming that housing is a right, does that incentivize or disincentivize landlords or business people or just entrepreneurs to create more housing? No, it's a disincentive, which ends up harming the market overall. So I, I just I, I found this whole thing very interesting. And apparently, sixty five percent of landlords are the so called mom and pop variety. You know, just regular people like you and me that happen to own a second or a third property. They're not like these big mega corporations that own. And, you know, certainly there is a certain degree of that, but that's only 35% of the market. And so San Diego wants to go way beyond the state law that requires one month for rent uh, for relocation assistance. So already there's a state law that they want one month of rent. You know, it used to be that you had to pay in advance a deposit and first and last month's rent. Now they want to give your last month's rent, make it free if you're evicted for no cause of your own. Again, that just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if a landlord wants to, has fulfilled the terms of the, of the lease and now wants to move back in or wants to sell it, or wants to rent to someone else, or wants to do an upgrade, well, all of those should be their choice because they fulfilled the terms of the lease and it's their property. That's what property rights are all about. Now, apparently, Los Angeles is being sued over its renter protection law, which said a landlord cannot evict a tenant for non-payment of rent if it didn't reach a threshold of $1,747 for a one-bedroom or $2,222 for a two-bedroom. So that's that's like the squatting. So if your rent, let's just say, um, was $1,500 for a one-bedroom, and then the renter decided to stop paying, they can't be evicted. They could just squat there. I mean, how does that make any sense? How is that trade? How is that free trade? I mean, that's almost like theft, where... A person owns property and they don't have any control over it. They can't manage it. They can't reach agreement with people that want to use it. And they said, yeah, in L.A., critics argued that bad renters would just shortchange their rents for months and not face eviction. And it's true. So I I just I don't get this. Um, I think, again, the, the solution here is to build more housing. If they did that, boy, there'd be a lot of things that would be solved here. Um, there'd be more roofs over people's head. Housing prices would dampen, if not go down, 
not just the price of buying real estate, but the price of renting apartments and condos and, 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 and single family homes. You'd have, um, it'd be a radical transformation for some of these neighborhoods and those neighborhoods don't like that. They don't want change, but overall it would be good. And imagine if there was more housing and the vacancy rate was no longer 4.2%, but the vacancy rate was 10% or 15%. Well, you suddenly renters would have a lot more choices in a competitive market and landlords would have to lower their price to try to attract those renters. And when they lower those prices, then there's less people that become homeless and more people that can be converted from homelessness back into homes if they just increase the supply. So, um, wow, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, okay, let's move on. And uh, we're at 48 minutes. And boy, I got a lot more to go here. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit more about if you want to get in touch with me. Um, I have another website, connectwithjohnny.com. If you go to Connect with Johnny, all my social media platforms are there. There you can... Um, you know, sign up for our mailing list. You can connect and follow on all the other social media platforms. You know, I'm very active on Twitter, a little bit on Facebook, but, but, but a lot on Twitter. And then I love responding to YouTube comments. So if you want to subscribe, like, follow, share, boy, I would love for you to support the podcast that way. Just go to connectwithjohnny.com. You can connect on all the social media platforms and sign up for our mailing list. Okay. Um, Let's keep moving. Let's keep the ball rolling. And I want to talk about this other issue. It's a similar topic. And this was an article that appeared in The Voice of San Diego. And it's in the headline is um, ratio billing in apartments leaves renters in the dark about utility costs. And at first you're thinking ratio billing. What does this mean? And the subheadline says a lack of transparency over charges for water, sewer and energy means tenants have little to no control over their monthly bills. And, you know, granted, I'm using an SDG&E logo here on, on the video screen, but it's really not an SDG&E issue. I mean, it, it's, you know, essentially it's like if they have a, if they have an apartment building, like some of these older apartment buildings, they only have one meter. That might be for, you know, a fourplex. Well, then how do they decide which unit, how much they pay if they don't have individual meters per unit? And so they've cooked up a lot of these algorithms, these formulas that allow them to essentially share that cost. And a lot of people are upset and they're angry about it. Um, San Diego tenants suspect that, that they're paying more than their fair share of utility costs, but they have no way of proving it. And here we go with fair share, right? Because we usually hear this in the context of taxation. Now we're hearing it in the context of paying for utility. So their landlords are using what's called ratio utility billing, a little known method of charging tenants for utilities like water, sewer, trash, and energy, but also services like pest control or even parking. Landlords can divvy out the costs and charge tenants themselves, but they often hire third-party companies to come up with a formula to assign these costs and then bill and interface with, uh, with tenants. So uh, this is a little bit like commercial. Um, uh, when, you, when you rent commercial space, you have to pay what's called triple net, which is usually like another additional, I don't know, what is it, 10 or 15% of whatever your rental payment is to cover um, maintenance of the common grounds and, uh, and a number of other things. Um, so here we're seeing a similar thing going on with the residential communities. But what I find fascinating about this is, is that 
yeah, people should want to pay their fair share. So if they have a, if a utility company is, you know, has a bill for San Diego Gas and Electric and there are four units in this fourplex, well, they should be billed proportionate to their usage. You should pay for what you use. But in this case, they can't do that because there is no individual metering at all in each of those units. So it kind of invites the question about this notion of fair share, because when costs are socialized in this case, you can't hold individual people accountable for what they pay. And so what you end up having is some people paying more than their fair share and other people paying less. And what does that encourage? It encourages people to use more water, more energy, because they're not being held accountable for that usage. And, and so these, these renters are rightfully upset about it, but a lot of it is because the cost is socialized. So um, I, I, just, I think this is just really interesting. And apparently it only happens with buildings that are older than 1970, where they have um, not implemented the multiple meters. There's only one meter in a lot of those kinds of apartment buildings, and that's what creates this problem. So how are other cities handling this? Now, I want to go back to some of these rent control cities like Santa Monica. They are banning this practice of ratio billing. They're saying we don't allow it because they know that they're they know that their tenants are not getting a fair shake. They know that their tenants are not being able to see or experience and understand what their true costs are. So Santa Monica, which is sort of the um uh, the, the, you know, the, 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 what would we call it? The, the icon for rent control. They're the ones that are saying we're banning it. We're saying when it comes to utilities, it needs to be just bundled in with the rent. Um, but what's interesting is, is that um, landlords can only raise the rent no more than 10% a year. But a lot of cases we're seeing utility costs spiking way more than that. I mean, geez, the utility bills for gas in San Diego in January, like roughly doubled for natural gas. And if you're bundling that into the rent and you are limited to only a 10% increase, I mean, that ties the hand of the landlord. Now, some people think, ah, oh, that's a good thing. Those, those, those landlords need to be controlled. But what does this do? Does this incentivize more construction? Does that incentivize more people to build more housing? No, it does the opposite. And when there's less housing, less rental units available, that's harmful to people at rent. So, um, but but the the funny part of this is is that this is a great deal of the objection to a lot of a lot of cases with socialism or collectivism where costs are shared. When you have this notion of costs being shared and you don't really pay for what you use, well, then it invites this situation where the the actual costs are not transparent. You're not being billed your fair share. And so as a result, that's why people get angry with, let's say, the tax code, because people don't have the ability to see, the ability to understand what services they're using and what the appropriate cost or, or expenses for those services. And now we're seeing this with utility bills with runners. I, I think it's an interesting topic. I mean, what do you think? So uh, let me know your thoughts and comments in the live stream on Facebook or on YouTube. Okay, let's move along. We've got a lot more to cover here. Um, 
the next topic I want to get to here, and, and this is this is kind of a, a similar angle, and it goes. It's, it's now this is actually about the San Diego Gas and Electric billing, and this was a letter to the editor that was in our local paper, the Poway Chieftain. You know, I live in Poway, and um, the Chieftain, uh, Poway Chieftain, and the San the Rancho Bernardo News Journal. They're they're like owned by the Union Tribune, and you know, they all like the big newspaper company owns a lot of these small local newspapers. And so this um, letter to the editor appeared, and I think it was interesting because one of our columnists, Harvey Levine, wrote a column that largely reflected a lot of what I said on a previous podcast about how the idea of charging flat rates for electricity based on income level was a flawed program that was really an attack on people that had already installed solar and were thus tapping less from the grid or not using the grid at all. And it was a way for San Diego Gas and Electric to boost their revenue and profits while saying that they're trying to help the little guy. But in fact, it was really a scheme to really boost their profits. And again, you know, I generally don't have a problem with companies trying to pursue generating more profit, but it's just the the underhanded notion of the way they do this and the way that, you know, within utilities, we have limited options because of the, of the you know, essentially a government-sponsored or government-sanctioned monopoly that exists. So according to this um, person from Poway, and his name is Jack Russ, he wrote this article or this letter to the editor, and he said, um, Harvey Levine, you know, the columnist that wrote in, in Poway Chieftain, he's right. Um, talking about the proposed electricity billing model was deceptive and dangerous, but he had different reasons. He, he, and his angle was different. And he says, the idea of charging higher rate for electric services for those with higher incomes is another bonehead idea coming from legislators in Sacramento. This compares in the dumbness of the Federal Fair Housing Finance Agency charging higher rate interest rates to borrowers with higher credit scores and loans backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So, yeah, I mean, if you've heard that one where people that have high credit scores, they want to actually charge them more fees, more interest. So people with lower credit scores can get relief. So you end up penalizing the responsible to help those at the bottom. So you end up incentivizing the wrong kind of behavior and you end up, you know, you talk about this notion of fair share, you end up distorting that whole idea. Well, now here, they're essentially trying to do something similar by charging people that are have higher incomes, a higher flat rate per month. Well, and a lot of these people like already have solar and they've been minimizing their usage of energy because we've all been told to conserve, to save the planet. We're all told to conserve to save money. We're all told to conserve so there aren't blackouts, rolling blackouts. And people have been doing that. Um, And now it looks like they're going to be penalized for that. Um, He goes on to say, uh, Jack Russ says, charging higher electricity delivery charges for high-income individuals supposedly provides relief to low-income homeowners who cannot afford the capital outlays for a solar system. But to be sure, you know, solar owners have been subsidized greatly with tax credits and overcompensated for solar production that's sent back to the grid. And they have. Now, from my, you know, I'm I'm not a big proponent of that policy that provides all these incentives. 
But if they're going to put the incentives on the table, I sure as heck am going to take advantage of them, especially considering how much I pay in taxes. So if I have an opportunity to get some of my own money back, I'd be a fool not to take advantage of that. And that's what a lot of people have done. And now they want to come back and zing them and make them pay more. So uh, and then he concludes his letter to the editor by saying electric service providers should not be turned into proxy tax collectors or used to backdoor income redistribution schemes. And that's exactly what this is. It's um, it is it is a backdoor proxy redistribution scheme, but all done under this notion of equity, all done under this notion of wokeness. But. Ultimately, violating the whole idea of what fair share is supposed to be. Because with electricity, you should pay for what you use. Just as it is with any other service. But here they want to make people that pay, that are using the service less to pay more. And they're actually encouraging people to pay, to use more energy and pay a lower rate as a result. So the incentives are the exact opposite of what fair share is supposed to be. Yet this is what is being proposed. So it was really interesting to see that letter to the editor in my local newspaper. Uh, you know, good on you, Jack Russ from Poway, for making those comments. I agree with you and, and uh, look forward to seeing more discussion on this. It sounds like this is all still going to happen. So we'll find out more in the coming weeks and months. I'll be sure to follow that story here on the John Riley Project. Okay, um, Let's keep moving along. Again, if you're watching on the live stream, I encourage you to participate. You can leave your thoughts and comments in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll get you involved. Okay, we, we want to talk a little bit about Todd Gloria and, and homelessness in San Diego. I got some thoughts and comments there. We're going to talk a little bit about electric vehicles. I got some ideas there as well. Um, and then we're going to get into the San Diego Community Forum, where we've got some feedback from our podcast listeners and viewers when it re- as it relates to um, cannabis and Rancho Bernardo, as it relates to some of the roads in San Diego and the San Diego gas and electric rates and even cruising in National City. We had some pretty interesting commentary there. We'll get to that in the San Diego Community Forum. So, okay, let's move on. And let's talk about Todd Gloria, the mayor of San Diego. And apparently he's had it. He's reached you know, the limit on how he can handle this homelessness crisis. And this, this article appeared in The Voice of San Diego. And the headline is, Todd Gloria wants, to, wants you to know he's had it. A series of questions at a hearing of a proposal pushed by the mayor and councilman to ban homeless encampments in most public spaces revealed a new chapter in San Diego's response to homelessness. Okay, so this, again, seems like a problem. Again, I've I've been a major outspoken critic of what the politicians have done to create the homelessness crisis in the first place by limiting construction of housing, by disincentivizing landlords from providing more units to to rent for all the reasons we just previously discussed. They are essentially, it's supply and demand. They're limiting supply and demand is always going to be huge in San Diego because it's America's finest city. And because there's so much economic opportunity, people are moving here. People are coming here to, to go to schools, to get jobs, to pursue their life. And they're having trouble finding places to live, places to stay, because there's very little housing available. 
and that causes prices to go up. And when prices go up, it pushes more and more people into the category of homelessness. Well, now what's going on here is that the mayor wants to prohibit homeless encampments in most public spaces. But it sounds like they've often had this rule for a long time, but now he's really wanting to crack down on this. And that's why that we're entering a new chapter, this, you know, the Maris had it chapter. So this ordinance would ban homeless encampments within two blocks of schools or shelters at transit hubs and other sensitive areas at all times. And it would ban encampments anywhere on public property only when there is a shelter where people can go. So they're saying, yeah, if you're in these zones, like near schools, near shelters, near transit hubs, you know, you need to clear out. Go somewhere else if you have a, if you want to set up a camp. You're not allowed there, period. And if you go somewhere else, you're only allowed to stay there if there are no other places you can go. Again, I think that's why they created that app so they could find places that people can go. You know, so homeless um, advocates, those that are out there helping the homeless can utilize that app and work with homeless people and say, hey, you know, four, da- four blocks down the street, there's a place and they got two beds available. There's a place where you can go. So you're not living on the street. That's good for you. And it's good for our neighborhood. And that's good. That's progress. Um, but it's getting to the point now where they're going to start to be much more heavy handed on cracking down on homelessness. And it's sad, but I think it's necessary because, again, the the problem was created by not having enough housing in the first place. And they need to build more housing. But in the short term, they still need to clear people out that are causing safety issues and other problems related in in their neighborhoods. Um, And. You just you just can't just set up shop on someone's land that you don't have the permission to be there, whether it's private property or even public property. Um, so uh, now uh, Todd Glorious is trying to tell unsheltered people, and they, they call it unsheltered rather than homelessness, that they are not welcome in San Diego. He's he's just quite quite hasn't mustered the motivation to say it that clearly. But that's ultimately what he's communicating. See, I, again, I, I see this as there's, there's a conflict going on here, and it's a moral conflict. Because on one hand, they don't want to look like the hard ass. They don't want to look like a guy that's kicking a person when they're down. They don't want to look like a person who's, that's, that is further damaging someone who's homeless that is already dealing with a lot of chaos and trauma in their lives. And they don't want to be the one that's going to make, make it worse. They want to be compassionate. So that's one level of the morality. But on the other side of it is, is that, well, there's all these other people that live there too. And when you have homeless encampments, when you have people living on the streets, when, when it's not safe to walk on your sidewalk, when it's not safe for your children to play outside, well, that's a problem too. And you can't just, you know, like I can't go onto someone's property and build um, a tiny home or build a tree house and decide to live there. It's someone else's land. But for the same notion, I can't go down onto a public sidewalk and build my own little house there 
you know, those little tiny houses that are like 600 square feet. I can't just build that and put it in the middle of the street or put it on a sidewalk because it's not my land. And I don't have permission to whoever owns that land. So it's a balance. And so these politicians are getting heavy grief from existing property owners saying, hey, man, why are you not cleaning this up? But on the other hand, they don't want to look like the hard ass that's kicking the homeless when they're down and they're dealing with this conflict and they're trying to get reelected. You know, so what's the ultimate issue is it's, it's, it's altruism versus sort of personal responsibility, right? So what do you want to be encouraging more of? Do you want to be encouraging more people to sacrifice to benefit the homeless? Or do you want to see more people encouraging personal responsibility? Now, I'm in the second camp. I like the idea that in some cases you have to clear them out. But I do also like the ideas like, you know, and it's a decent compromise is that if there's a place where they can go and it's, it's you know, there's a roof over their head and it's free to them, then get them there. Okay. And that, that's, that's, that's a win-win that helps the homeless person. It helps the neighborhood. Frankly, it helps that politician if they can expedite that process. So now he is, um, you know, I mean, because you know, Todd Glory is an aspiring politician. He was at city council and then didn't he go on to be in the state assembly, I think. And then he came back and became mayor. You know, he's a political animal. He, he has intent, I'm sure, to run for higher office. And he's got a big problem here with homelessness. And he's got to figure out a way to solve it. But, you know, this problem goes way beyond just what San Diego's done. It's, it's, this is a statewide issue. This is a nationwide issue. But it's because of the housing policies and the other economic policies that have been implemented that are largely the same throughout most of the United States and certainly most of California. So here's another quote from the article. In one exchange, then, we got to the actual point of the ordinance. The point is not to create a new city law to prohibit camping because the city law already prohibits camping. The point is to send a message, do not camp here. (laughs) And apparently here means all of San Diego. So I think what this means is, is that they're going to try to get a lot more hardcore with enforcing it. But to a degree, it's, it is a whack-a-mole problem because you can clear people out in one spot. They're just going to reappear somewhere else. So I think that's why there has to be a place to go. Um, and if there is an app that can help people find a place to go. Now, granted, I don't know if we can expect, you know, some homeless people can figure that out on their own. Some homeless people cannot for any variety of reasons related to mental health and addiction and PTSD. I mean, there's a lot of people going through a lot of serious challenges. They need help. But can they get help on their own or do they need a helping hand? I think most most every one of these people needs some form of assistance to get out of their trap that they're in. And so whether it's finding them a shelter bed that's available, that's good. And hopefully those people will be convinced to go there. But in other cases, yeah, they may need to set up areas where they will allow the camping and just put and push people to those locations. And then it's contained, then it's managed, then it's safer for everybody, safer for the people in the encampment and safer for people that 
live in apartments and condos and, and, and homes that were previously having people living in front of their house on the sidewalk. So apparently Mayor Todd Gloria has made no secret that he's eyeing Inspiration Point and its giant parking lot at the edge of Balboa Park. Okay. Now, it's funny. I think of Inspiration Point. I think of Happy Days. That's where the the young teens would go to, you know, with their boyfriend, girlfriends and go, you know, hang out. I should put that in air quotes, hang out. Um, but yeah, if there's a place like that, that's that makes a lot of sense. Now, some people have said, put them, you know, way out in the boonies in East County. I mean, that doesn't make sense because you got to transport them. They're going to have trouble doing that. And once they're there, they're going to be isolated and have very little uh, ability to kind of reintegrate with society. There was another proposal that was offered by, is it the Lucky Duck Foundation? Something like that. And I remember Bill Walton was a big propo- uh, proponent of this, was to try to get the Navy to allow um, a homeless campment on Miramar just east of the 15 freeway. Again, interesting spot to have it, but it's so isolated and so disconnected from the rest of the world, um, it would be hard. I mean, they could stay there and there could be services there, but it's not really providing a a kind of a, a runway or a launching pad to reintegrate into society. So if it's at Balboa Park, you know, maybe they can do it there. You know, there's pros and cons to each location, but this is something that he's going to have to figure out and he's going to have to make some tough calls here and make some hard decisions. And have to live with the consequences of those decisions. Because I think for the longest time, they've been kind of hemming and hawing, hoping they could figure this out. And it's just gotten to the point where they can't solve it. Or they're at least they're unwilling to solve it. Um, and so what's the message? Apparently to the homeless, it's you need to leave or find a really good hiding place. Uh, to the house, it, it's we're pushing them along and you're welcome. Well, yeah, I mean, some of these people are going to have to find hiding places. But yeah, I mean, heck, here in my hometown of Poway, um, they found homeless encampments that were in kind of hiding places, and the city has cleared them out. And they should, I mean, because that's someone else's land. Um, and they're there without permission. But it does suck. Where do they go? I mean, that's the other half of this that has to be solved. So. Hopefully they can find a place, you know, on a temporary basis for, you know, until the housing crisis is resolved where they can go. Um, If not, you know, into a place that's providing shelter or to a place that is open space where they can be contained and managed and it's safe for everybody involved. Um, Gloria goes on to say, I will not house the homeless population for every other city in the county of San Diego. A part of this enforcement ordinance is about making sure we are taking care of our people because we are compassionate folks. But I'm not going to be mopping up the messes in other people's cities. So this is the internal moral conflict. And as a politician trying to balance both sides, and it's really they're two, these are two opposing views that are directly in opposition to each other. It's altruism versus egoism or altruism versus public or personal responsibility. So we'll see how this goes. Now, there's a follow on to this story. And it's, you know, because the city, we we had talked about this before, um, where the city was planning to make some government buildings available for the homeless, which I thought was a decent idea. If you've already got like an an available, empty government building, there you can move people in. 
Well, now the city's going beyond that, and they're now buying hotels. And so this is breaking news here that the um, city of San Diego is pursuing three hotels. They're all um, uh, from Extended Stay America. I think there's one in Hotel Circle, another one in Mission Valley, and then one up in Murphy Canyon. And they're going to buy these, and they're going to convert them into housing for the homeless at the cost of $383,000 per unit. And they're going to get $150 million in state funds to use for this. So you're thinking, hmm, is this good? Is this a good idea? Well, it's just like anything, it cuts both ways. So on one level, yeah, you're, you're getting more housing units, more places that the homeless people can go, provided you can convince them to go there. And then hopefully they can get on their feet and transition back into normal society. But, you know, this is only providing, I, I mean, how many beds? 400 rooms. I mean, that's like barely a dent. I mean, how many homeless are in San Diego County? It's in the thousands. And they just did a census recently. What was it, like 2,500 or 3,000, something like that? I mean, this will help, no doubt. But what are the conditions? You know, how long can they stay? Can, I mean, can they stay there permanently? I don't know. Um, but they're, they're coming up with $383,000 a unit. And some people are saying, you're nuts. That's way too expensive. You know, in many cases, the city is a victim of their own housing policy because by limiting construction, limiting housing, They've made housing more expensive, and now when they have to go in and buy housing to help the homeless, they're paying it at a higher rate. Um, so uh, commissioners on this, um, this housing commission were actually praising the policy. They were saying, well, this is really good, you know, because um, our, our median home price in San Diego is like $750,000, and here we're buying these places for only 383. So that's a good thing, right? That's a good deal. And it's just ah, it's it's like backwards thinking because ultimately the responsibility to find a place to live is not the government's. It's not politicians. People that should be in charge of finding places to live is each individual. And it should be your responsibility to take care of your own life. I mean, that's what this idea of inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness means, is that you have a right to manage your own life. You are in control of you. You own you. You do you. Your life is yours. So ultimately, that's the core. That's the fundamental. And the further and further we get from that, the further and further we get all these distortions. So on one level, can the city make existing city property, city buildings available for homelessness? To me, that makes sense. Should they go a step further and start buying property to house the homeless? That's a tough one um, because what you're essentially doing is you're penalizing those that did take responsibility to cover for those that didn't or, or had trouble in their lives or had challenges. And so you talk about this notion of fair share, it completely gets warped. But they do have to have a short-term solution because the housing crisis is not going to be solved with a flip of a switch. The housing crisis has been 
kind of building and growing and, and, and bubbling for decades till it hit a real breaking point here in the 2000s, you know, well, it hit an original breaking point when then we had the Great Recession, but then it hit, it's hitting another one during COVID where housing prices went nuts. I mean, they, we just said the housing rental prices have gone up almost 20% in the last couple of years. So they do have to have a short-term solution too. So the question is, is do they buy property? Do they buy these uh, like motels that I'm sure the property owner, you know, wants to probably unload. They don't want to have to go and remodel and upgrade them. Maybe they can just sell it to the city and make some bank. Or is it better to have a place like Inspiration Point or Miramar or someplace else where housing for the homeless can exist and it's still a tent encampment like it is now? I think this is debatable. Um, but I think it is odd to think of this as that this is good. $383,000 per unit is better than 750000 Well, yeah, but that's that's missing the point. I mean, the point is, is that the Housing Commission should be about helping people find housing within a marketplace, not by the Housing Commission actually going into the business of being a landlord themselves. And frankly, they're not a landlord at all because they're not charging for it. It's actually free. Um, so uh, the commissioner of the Housing Commission, uh, Mitch Mitchell said, when you could find a way to pick up 412 rooms and begin housing people and close in October, you have to be thrilled about the opportunity. Yeah. And if you're just trying to get people off the streets, that makes sense. That's a good thing. But how are you going to be able to convince them to do it? You know, a lot of these people have issues. I mean, there's mental health issues. There's addiction issues, PTSD issues. It's hard to reason with people that don't think rationally. Are you going to be able to convince someone who's living in a tent to move to Murphy Canyon or to Mission Valley to move into one of these motel rooms? I'm sure there's some homeless people that would jump at the chance. They'd be all over it. But there's going to be other people that are going to resist and obfuscate and, 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 and deflect. And what do you do with them? Do you forcibly move them? I mean, you could forcibly move them out of an encampment for reasons that make sense. But can you force them to move in to one of these places? I think that's going to be a tough sell for some of these people. Again, this problem is so multidimensional, homelessness. There's, there is no silver bullet solution. So Bob Roche from uh, Roche and Associates, which um, owns and operates hotels, he's saying, this is nuts. They overpaid last time during the pandemic and they're overpaying again. Because, yeah, during the pandemic, they bought more of these motels. And then Alan Jin, you know, who's a very well-known economic professor at USD, um, he's always commenting on the local economy. And he says, homelessness and the housing market are serious and related problems and should be addressed. And he's right. These are very serious problems. But what do you think of that? Now, the key is, is that if they were able to secure these places, could they convince people to move in? And secondly, would it become a temporary solution? So they could get on their feet and reintegrate into society by managing their own life responsibly. Or would it just be a place where they would just be indefinitely? 
Because if that's the case, then that's not really solving the problem ultimately. I mean, it, it kind of removes the eyesore, moves them off the street. But the end result of all of this is, is that besides the fact we need more housing, we just need more people to take responsibility for their own lives. And that's good for everybody. Will this solve the problem? I don't know. And then are you incentivizing the wrong behavior? Are you incentivizing by making free housing available? People are saying, okay, well, you know, I don't need to live in my apartment. If the landlord jacks up the rent, then fine. I'll just go over here and I can live for free at taxpayer expense. Is that right? I mean, is that moral? Is freeloading moral? Is freeloading fair share? These are all fair questions to ask. So look forward to your thoughts and comments on the live stream. You can, you can leave them in the live chat on Facebook or on YouTube. Okay, let's move on. I got a couple more t- uh, stories I'm going to talk about. Before I get to them, I am being paged and we'll respond very quickly. Okay, let's, let's move forward. I want to talk a little bit about electric vehicles. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of EVs. I've been driving an EV in some form for over 10 years, whether it was a plug-in hybrid or a, um, a, or a, a, or a EV with an extended range unit, gas-powered extended range unit on it, or a full-blown EV. I've been doing that for, since 2012, and I love them. I love EVs. I think it's the greatest technology. I'm excited about it. I kind of like the fact that I'm an early adopter of it. Um, but you know, the sales of these things are just exploding. So uh, apparently California has hit their 1.5 million unit target for EVs. And in San Diego County, they sold over 10,000 EVs in just the first quarter of 2023 from January to March, they sold over 10,000 electric vehicles in San Diego County. This is incredible. So, um, you know, it, again, this is like any new technology. In the early days when I was driving an EV, there was very little EV infrastructure. I was like a unicorn. <laughs> um, and as more and more people are driving it, it's becoming more adopted. People are understanding it more. There's still a million myths around electric vehicles. Those are being resolved. And those are being more, I should, I should say, more betterly understood a lot of these myths are breaking down. Um, so uh, California had a goal to reach one and a half million EVs by 2025, and they got there two years early. And apparently the sales of zero emission cars in California have been flat from 2018 to 2020, but have soared in the last two years. <laughs> well, why? Because of gas prices went crazy in the last two years. And that's when people finally said, I'm done. I'm opting out of gas. I'm done with those big oil people, and I'm getting an electric vehicle. And they have. Um, so according to um, Josh Boone, who's a Sacramento-based public-private nonprofit that supports the move to electric transportation, he says, I think it's a coming together of having the right policy standards as well as having the right market conditions. These conditions include automakers offering 115 different makes and models of electric vehicles government incentive programs, and building out more charging stations. And he's true. All, all three of those are true. There are more and more companies that are creating EVs. A lot of the traditional auto manufacturers are, are coming out with brand new EV lines. Some are pivoting very heavily. Volkswagen and Hyundai particularly are pivoting very strong to electric vehicles. There's a lot of new companies like Tesla, 
like um, Lucid. Um, um, there's a lot of others that are just EV only companies that are coming forward. And where there used to only be, you know, a couple of Teslas and maybe a Nissan Leaf. And remember, there was the um, uh, the Chevy uh, Volt, you know, back about eight, nine years ago. And then they had the Chevy Bolt. I mean, there's still only about maybe 10 models at one point. Now there are 115, which is great. But it's the reason is, is because that's where all the incentives are going. Um, government is subsidizing this transition. Government is not only subsidizing the purchase of these, the government is installing um, electric charging stations, and they're discouraging the use of gasoline through all the climate change policies. So these auto manufacturers see the writing on the wall, and they've pivoted, and they're now uh, creating more of, of these um, uh, more of these EVs, more EV technology. And then people get angry. They're like, why are gas prices so high? Or why, why are they approving more uh, drilling permits, but they're not actually drilling for more oil? Well, because of this. Because oil companies are choosing not to invest because they can see the writing on the wall that they're going to be made obsolete soon. And they're also seeing, well, they need to maximize their opportunity to make as much as they can now because in the future they won't be able to. So again, these policies distort what's happening on in, in, the, in the marketplace. And so you have this surge of EVs and this continued pressure on the fossil fuel industry as a result of that. So um, the state, by the way, California offers $7,500 or up to $7,500 rebate for a battery electric or hydrogen fuel car and up to $6,500 for a hybrid you know, that's electric and gas powered. And at the federal level, you can get up to $7,500 as well. And that's the great thing about EVs is that's one of the reasons I drive them. There are all these financial incentives. You, they, they give you money to subsidize the purchase of the car. They subsidize, um, you know, if you want to use the HOV lane for free, you know, in the middle of the 15 freeway, it costs me like 25, 30 bucks. I get a sticker on my car and I can drive there for free where otherwise it would cost me between two and $10 a day to use that lane. Companies are offering free charging. I can go down here to Target in Poway, park right in front of the store, provided there's an open space. It's been a lot more crowded lately. Um, and I can charge for free. There are free charging stations being put into rest areas, fat high-speed charging stations. So if you're on a road trip and you're on a rest area, a lot of them are now having state-sponsored charging stations. So... I've gone, I've gone to other businesses that'll offer free charging, whether you're in hotels, they'll offer free charging. In some cases, other businesses like um, the Stone Brewery Gardens in Escondido, they have free charging there as well. So while you're having a beer or having a meal, your charge, your car is charging for free. Well, you're paying for it indirectly through the cost of what you're buying, but there are all these incentives. I mean, heck, even if you if you have an EV, you can get a special lower rate on electricity from San Diego Gas and Electric if you choose to charge your EV at night between 12 midnight and 6 a.m. They give you a lower rate. All these incentives. And so people are finally taking advantage of this. And I think this is great. Now, according to um, Mark Scribner, who is uh, from the Reason Foundation, which is like a libertarian think tank, he said... If the state is trying to align consumer sentiment with political desires, and certainly they have every reason to celebrate the growing share of EVs and overall fleet sales. And that's what this is. It's a political move that's aligned with what consumers want. 
He says, but but he went on to say, I think subsidizing EV sales is unnecessary. If consumers increasingly want EVs, well, that's what they're going to purchase. And that I agree with 100%. If they are, if they want to opt out of gas, then they'll buy EVs. And that's what it should be. It should be a free and open marketplace, a competitive marketplace. But when they have these subsidies, they end up perverting the incentives. And by the way, when they end up having to subsidize EVs, it just encourages the EV companies to raise their prices as well. And we've seen that with a lot of automobile manufacturers. When EV subsidies went up, they raised their prices as well. So I don't fault... EV owners, I'm one of them, of, of adopting electric vehicles because they save you a ton of money. They're fun to drive. They help the environment. They're great. Um, but at the same time, they're, they come at a cost. And the fact that other people are subsidizing them, well, in my case, I'm convinced that I'm just getting my own tax dollars back. But for other people, yeah, it's legitimate. They're getting money from other people to pay for this. Um, Is that right? Is that moral? Is that the right way to encourage this adoption? I don't know. But the one thing that's for sure, the one thing that's true is that EVs are coming and they're coming fast and they're coming strong. And there are a lot of people that don't like this revolution, that resist it, that constantly want to put up a a wall to block them or to, to, they, they want to cover their eyes and ears and mouth like the three monkeys. And there's a lot of myths around EVs, but, you know, all the headwinds are pointing in that direction. So, um, and, and by the way, if, if you're interested in, if you do drive an EV, I have another website. It's called electric vehicle charging stations, CA.com electric vehicle charging stations, CA.com. If you go there and if you drive an EV, let's say you drive a Tesla model uh, three, or you drive a Hyundai Kona EV, well, you can download for free wallpaper for your phone, for your tablet, or for your desktop computer that showcases your car in in San Diego, at the beach, or at a lot of other kind of creative and cool places. So if you want to check that out, go to electricvehiclechargingstationca.com. You can download for free desktop wallpaper, tablet wallpaper, and phone wallpaper Featuring your your favorite electric vehicle, electric vehicle charging station, CA.com. Okay, um, I've got one more topic that we're going to cover here before we get to the San Diego Community Forum. And this is about EVs. And this is another interesting uh, topic that came up here. And it was a letter to the editor in the LA Times. And this person said, I'm ready to trade in my electric car. Here's why. She was done with this. She, she, she doesn't want to continue to use her EV. She said, I, I, I love the EVs and the, the sticker to use the HOV lane and, and the routine maintenance costs are really low. And that's all true. She says, but after three years, I'm thinking seriously of trading it in for a gas-powered hybrid plug-in version. Why? Because as much as I love my car, I loathe that I can't travel around California, a state that's led the electric car revolution with confidence that I can get a charge when I need one. Yes, there are significantly more public charging stations than when I first got behind the wheel of my Kia Nero EV in January of 2020. 
but there are also significantly more electric vehicles vying to use them. And still vast areas of the state without single fast chargers. Chargers are more reliable now, but oftentimes I find that, you know, about 25% of them aren't working. And apparently that, that, that data is confirmed in the Bay Area by researchers that, yeah, about 25% of the charging stations are broken. So this is interesting now because we were just saying how EV sales have been skyrocketing the last two years. Yeah. And we hear this comment, oh, we need more electric vehicle charging stations. Well, we do. But how bad is it? Um, Now, I'll just tell you my experience. Now, I live in a single family home with a garage and we have an electric charging station in our garage. Um, the, the station itself costs us about, I think it was about $500. And then I had to have an electrician install it. And that was roughly another 500 Because you can't just plug it into like a 110 outlet. They got to do 220 volt. And you need, you need an electrician to do that for you. So it costs you like about 1000 bucks to put it in. We have one charging station in our garage. We share it amongst our two cars. We have a Tesla Model 3 and a Hyundai Kona EV. And it's a great system. We share it. Um, we alternate use of it. It's never a problem. Um, and for my wife, she never has to use an, a, a public charging station because she generally doesn't go on long road trips. And if we do, I'm the one driving and usually we'll take my car. And for me, 90% of my charging is handled by the electric charging station in my garage. But when I'm on the road and I have to use a public charging station, I personally have had very little trouble. Um, Have I ever encountered stations that don't work? Yeah, I have. I I use an app called PlugShare. Or you can go to PlugShare.com that shows you where all the stations are. And people will self-report if some of those stations are broken. So you can plan ahead. But yeah, sometimes you get to a place and the thing breaks. That, that happens. Um, you know, because it's part of this evolution as they're putting them in. When you're driving an EV, I, I, like I said, I started over 10 years ago. I was on the cutting edge of this when it was really hard to find charging. Thank goodness I was able to charge in my, my garage. I've, my personally have found is that when I'm on the road and I'm, go, I'm, I'm using a high-speed charging station, which is a station that when you plug in will only take you, depending on your car and depending on your battery capacity, between 20 minutes and maybe a little over an hour to fully charge. I can think of only one time I had to wait in line to charge. And even then, I only had to wait 10 minutes before I could plug in. Every other time I drive right up to the station, there's like, you know, one to six stations and half of them are open. Sometimes all of them are open. I just plug in and go. When I, when I'm, um, I, I've driven up the 395 from San Diego, you take the 15, go up to San Bernardino, Victorville, and then you get the 395 and you take that up into the Eastern Sierras. And I worked my way up to Tahoe and Reno. I've done that trip numerous times. Um, that trip, there are rest areas along that trip that have a high-speed charging station that is free, that you don't have to pay a nickel to use. Oh, you pay for it with taxes. And I've never had to wait. I just drive right in, plug in, go. Never a problem. 
Now, as more and more people are adopting EVs, yeah, they're going to need to put in more charging stations. But right now, it's, I mean, it's not as bad as some people think. Now, granted, if you don't have the convenience of having a charging station at home or a charging station at your place of work, and you're entirely dependent on these public stations, then yeah, that could be difficult. That could be hard. Like if you're a renter in an apartment and your apartment complex doesn't have a charging station there, and you've got to essentially go to the EVgo or the Electrify America station periodically throughout the week, that's hard. But I think a lot of that's changing too as apartment buildings are putting in more and more EV chargers to attract tenants or to provide a rationale for higher rent increases. But then again, this is affected by the housing crisis where sometimes apartment buildings, they don't need to compete as hard to get tenants because there's so little vacancy because there hasn't been enough construction of housing. That's a whole other tangent. But so many, so many often these things are just so interconnected. Um, but if you are a single family homeowner and you have a charging station in your garage, it's easy. It's really easy. And the only time you really need to use a public charging station is when you're on a long road trip. And, you know, here I live in Poway. I'm able to drive from Poway to L.A. and back on one full charge. I don't need any public charging. Now, that's on a car that has a range of over 250 miles. And it's cutting it short by the time you get home. But it's doable. The only time I've ever had to use uh, public charging stations is when I go on longer trips to San Francisco, to Tahoe, to Reno, to Vegas, to Tucson. I remember I even drove once out to Albuquerque in 2018. Now, that was an adventure. It was a lot of fun. I did a whole podcast episode on that trip because uh, in 2018, there was very little charging infrastructure in New Mexico. I mean, almost none. And, and same with eastern Arizona. But I pulled it off and I was really proud of that. It was kind of fun. It was like a like a, an adventure. It was like a hunting for a treasure map and oases in the desert to find these charging stations. But I made it work. But now it's way easier because there's way more charging stations. And yeah, there's more people that are getting EVs. But I think the, the private market is already installing a lot of these high-speed charging stations from Electrify America, from EVgo, from ChargePoint. And a lot of other companies are getting involved in this. Um, Volkswagen, by the way, when they had that emissions fraud case that was about five or six years ago, they had to pay a huge fine. It was like a billion dollars or more. And that, and that money is actually being spent to put in more EV charging infrastructure. So you've, you've got private companies that are just doing it on their own. You get private companies that are doing it because they're getting money from these lawsuits. And then there's also this government initiative to subsidize um, installations or in some cases to build their own and install them on government property like at rest areas or in library parking lots and a lot of those sorts of things. That's already happening now. So it's interesting to me now that she said that. Now, granted, she's this is from the L.A. Times. So if you live in L.A., it's different. You know, L.A. and I've had to charge in L.A. before and it's not as easy, um, especially when you're kind of off the beaten path, when you're not like on a freeway that's like a main drag. Like if you're on the 15 between San Bernardino and Vegas, as an example, you know, there are places along the way. Like you get to Baker and there is a ton of, you know, where the world's largest thermometer is. There's a ton of charging stations there. But, you know, because that's a major thoroughfare. 
But if you're like in LA and you're kind of not on a major freeway or you're on a side street or just a, you're on Wilshire Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard or some other big artery. Yeah, it can be hard to find the charging stations and sometimes they're going to be broken. But it's all part of the natural evolution of this. I mean, EVs are not for everybody, but EVs, I think, are great for most people, especially if you own your own home. If you're a renter, it's a lot harder. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so she's thinking about uh, turning in her car. And she says, when I, when, I go, uh, when I chose an electric vehicle, I says, I knew it meant an extra 30 minutes in travel time for each start charging stop during a road trip. But I did not count on the time wasted um, having to, for example, backtrack to another station or, or one out of my way because the charging station on my route was not working. And that does happen. In my experience, those are the exceptions, not the rule, but they do happen. And then she concludes by saying, I could fill up a book recounting the many frustrations and absurd experiences I've had charging my car over the last three years and three months, and I haven't even hit 23,000 miles on the car yet. My hunch is, is that she doesn't have a charging station at home. My hunch is, is that She's challenged by having to use to rely on the public charging infrastructure more so than someone like me. And yeah, there are going to be frustrations and there are growing pains. And I knew that going in when I got an IV, I kind of embraced the growing pains. I I kind of embraced the idea of being um, what they call the early adopters, kind of on the cutting edge. To me, it was exciting. It was fun. But some people just aren't wired that way and they don't like that. And I get it. I understand that. But it's interesting to see while we're seeing we now have 1.5 million EVs in California. In San Diego County, over 10,000 were sold just between January and March of this year. There's a huge surge going towards EVs. But here is one case of someone that wants to go back to a gas power car or at least a hybrid. I find that interesting. Okay. Um, let's now jump into our community forum. And um, I've got a number of things that we're going to discuss here in the community forum. You can still get involved. If you have uh, comments or questions and you're watching on the live stream, just type them in in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. I'll get you involved. Um, but I do have some comments from our YouTube channel, and I want to get these people involved. And, and this one is from Dos Jimmy's. And Dos Jimmy's was commenting about the podcast um, segment we did about the Rancho Bernardo getting the Urban Leaf Cannabis Outlet. You know, it was finally approved after over four years of the entrepreneurs fighting through red tape to get this approved because of government permitting and, and planning board regulations and a lot of opposition from locals in the community that didn't want a cannabis outlet. I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, cannabis is a medicine that helps people. Um, this is not some voodoo drug. And Dos Jimmy says, hey, a good take, John. Wish more people would speak out like this. Unfortunately, it's only the folks who are in opposition who show up to the hearings. And I did notice that from the newspaper article when they share about these public forums where the, the planning board or you know some kind of regulatory agency is hearing the case of whether or not they should allow this cannabis retailer to go in, it's usually the people that are opposing it that are the most vigorously motivated. Um, 
Yeah, because you figure the people that smoke pot are like, hey, man, no, no worries. Chill out, man. I don't need to do that. Um, again, I, 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 I often think this is very similar to the NIMBY problem with housing. People don't want to allow freedom for other people. They want it for themselves, but not for others. And in this case, yeah, they're, they're blocking it. So now, but it has been approved. I'm not sure when it's going to go in. But I predict that Urban Leaf in Rancho Bernardo will be at minimum moderately successful. I don't think they're going to go out of business because I think there's a lot of people, as they learn more about cannabis and its health benefits, are going to embrace it more. And they're going to realize that this is not, you know, a place with a lot of riffraff and and other kinds of nonsense happening in that neighborhood. Okay, moving along. Um, this is uh, a little bit about SDG&E, and we talked about their, their rate structure, and this is from Stephen Croft, and he was commenting and said, this is strictly the big utility company's way of maintaining control of all power generation in the state to ensure they maintain their lucrative monopolies and continue to profit at each stage, using the bill as an excuse to remove blame from themselves who have been working towards establishing a minimum customer service charge for years. Yeah, Stephen's 100% right here. Because as more people are installing solar, they're using the grid less. And when they use the grid less, that's less revenue from San Diego Gas and Electric, less profit for their shareholders. So by having a flat rate, they can guarantee a certain level of income no matter how much energy is used, including not using any energy at all. For us as as solar customers, there are months where we use no net electricity, particularly in the spring and the fall. And in many cases, even during the winter, when we are generating more electricity from our solar panels and selling it back into the grid, easily overcompensates for what little we use at night. But if we had a battery, we wouldn't even have to use the grid at night at all. And in those cases, SDG&E can't make money. So that's what this flat rate structure does. And it ends up penalizing those that have, have done what, what society has been saying is responsible, which is get solar. So, yeah, that's exactly what this is. And it's, it's greater control. And they're trying to make it feel good, like, you know, oh, but we're doing this so we can give a discount to the, to the disadvantaged, to the, to the low income. They're trying to use altruism as a hook to get people to buy in when, in fact, that's not their ultimate angle. They're, they're a corporation. Their ultimate angle is to generate revenue and profits for their shareholders. I don't blame them for that. I just, I just don't like the deceptiveness of how they're trying to sell it. And, um, and I think that if we're going to encourage solar, if that's where we want to go with this, then this is counter to that. Um, but uh, yeah, good on you, Stephen, for speaking out on that. Let's get another comment here on our community forum. And this is from Mike Devine. Mike is a frequent commenter on the YouTube channel, another local guy here um, in the Poway Ramona area. And Mike was commenting on the San Diego potholes. You know, we talked about the city streets and how rotten the streets are in Rancho Bernardo and in uh, um, Carmel Mountain Ranch. In fact, there was another poster on our YouTube channel that was complaining about the roads in Penasquitos, saying how terrible they were there. Um, another guy actually on our YouTube channel was was complaining 
that we were complaining. You know, he was like, well, why do you live there if the roads are so bad? And I'm like, hey, man, I live in Poway. The roads are pretty good here. But when I got to go over to when I go to RB down Ted Williams Parkway, there's potholes all over the place. Same with Carmel Mountain Ranch or Carmel Mountain Road. That's a disaster. Well, Mike Devine says, I wonder if the lack of maintenance on the roads in Rancho Bernardo and Carmel Mountain Ranch are based on race. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a joke, but it is interesting, though, because it seems that almost every kind of issue that we just discuss in our society, in the news, in politics, has some kind of an equity angle to it, some kind of a diversity, exclusion, inclusion, equity. I'll bet you there are some people that believe that, that there is a race element to this. Now, if... But then again, you know, the people who live in Rancho Bernardo and Carmel Mountain Ranch are overwhelmingly Asian or white. I mean, is it discrimination based on race? I don't, I don't think it is. But it's funny to bring it up because sometimes there is a legitimate point that there are racial issues related to particular policies. But sometimes... It has nothing at all to do with it. And in this case, road maintenance, particularly road maintenance in Rancho Bernardo and in Carmel Mountain Ranch, that is not a racial issue. But it's, I think Mike was bringing it up almost more as a joke. Okay, and moving along, and this is our last comment in our, um, in our community forum. This is from WaveDog100. WaveDog has responded to a number of my videos, particularly commenting about the, uh, the farm in Poway and that new... Um, um, lifetime fitness they're considering putting in. But I had made a comment about National City, right? And they lifted the cruising ban and how that was a great thing because it's freedom. It's pursuit of happiness. And really, this is a case where you can say that race or ethnicity plays a role because this was largely targeted at those that wanted to show off low riders, which tends to be much more Latino community. And I think it was a racially motivated thing. And so, and Wave Dog says, racially motivated? A MAGA guy with a four by four? Seriously? <laughs> you know, because I did make that comment. Um, so uh, he, he says, uh, you articulate yourself quite well, but this is the best you can do. What if the cruising was not these cars or culture, but a bunch of four by four enthusiasts? Would you look at it in the same way? NIMBY? Not in my backyard? What if this was in your backyard in Poway, off of the neighborhood street? You would still be as welcoming? Hey, I've got a suggestion to help make a home more affordable. Stop blowing money on your car and save up a bit. Well, this is the idea. It's like if you didn't have public streets, then they have to be open to the public. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, my, my, my position on this is consistent. If suddenly... A bunch of four by fours waving their American flags, <laughs> you know, all the Trump supporters that are usually out on Sundays at Pomerado Road and Twin Peaks, they started cruising up and down my neighborhood. I mean, it's a public street. Right. Are they are they being if they are they doing it to be an intended nuisance to aggravate other people? That's one thing. But if they're just cruising and that's just cruising. So that can occur anywhere on a public street. 
And does that create chaos for the people that live in that area? Yeah, it does. But, you know, so does commute times. So does a lot of other things when we're using public streets. That's the, that's the notion of being open to the public. So, again, I think this was the greatest thing, that they lifted the cruising man. Because like I said, I did cruising back in my day when I was in high school and I enjoyed it. Usually cruising is done on major arteries, not in small neighborhoods. You know, because the streets are wider. There's more ease, more access, more ability to maneuver around, more places to stop along the way to get something to eat. And that's all good. So good on National City for doing that. And I, I think it's great. And, and was it based on race? I, I, don't, I don't know if it was overt, but it's definitely subvert. It's, there's, there, there's definitely something there to that because ultimately it's the lowriders that were the most affected by this. And National City is a city that proportionately has a lot more Latino people than most any other city in San Diego County. So it, it definitely has a race angle to this. I don't think that really is deniable. Okay. Um, like I told you earlier, I was getting paged. That means I need to wrap up this podcast. So I've been going for almost two hours. That's plenty of time. I'm going to chop this into pieces and share it on my YouTube channel and on Facebook, on Twitter. I encourage you, if you want to participate, you can get involved. Go to my website, johnreillyproject.com or connectwithjohnny.com. There you can connect on all of our social media platforms and continue the discussion. Um, thanks for joining me. Thanks for being with me. I will be back next Wednesday at 12 noon or thereabouts. Approximately 12 noon on Wednesdays is when I live stream. And then we'll be sharing elements of this in the subsequent days. Um, thanks again, everybody, and make it a great day out there. It's warming up in San Diego. Have a good one. We'll see you later. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.